What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA for about an hour, give or take 10 minutes. Or you can check the extra podcast, which is about 30 minutes, on my Patreon, or if you join as a member. Even though there wasn't a UFC event, we did have Bellator, Patricio Pitbull putting in the work, showing he is the best Bellator fighter and one of the best featherweights in the world, regardless of organization. The guy is getting better. The way he knocked down and then submitted Emmanuel Sanchez is nothing short of amazing. So I was saying I would like to see him in the UFC and fight UFC fighters. As a fan, just seeing that competition level is something I really want to witness. But then on the other hand, when I really thought about it, I would like him to stay at Bellator because I do like competitiveness between organizations. It's better for the fighters, and if it proves to be successful in some way, there's more avenues for fans to go so they can watch more fights. I mean, how amazing would it be that we can watch a Bellator event and a UFC event weekly? Two events a week would be crazy, man, and some really high-level competition where they're kind of equal with each other. It's almost like watching two UFC events in one week. Some people will get burnt out because of that, but... For me, man, I can't get enough of fights. I wish there were multiple events a week, honestly. But then again, man, I would love to see Pitbull fight Volkanovski or fight Max Holloway. I think he'd give any of those guys a run for their money. Not saying he would beat them, not saying he would become a champion, but he's like the only Bellator fighter, maybe Gegard Mousasi's in there as well. He's like the only Bellator fighter where I'm pretty confident he has a chance of becoming a UFC champion. His skills are no joke, man. He's good everywhere. He has some weaknesses here and there, especially leg kicks, but it depends who he fights in the UFC. Volkanovski will definitely go to his legs. Holloway doesn't normally go to that. If he does, it's not powerful leg kicks. He'd definitely be a great addition to the featherweight division over there. Lightweight may be a little bit too much. I think he would be top 10, but featherweight would definitely be his home. Even the featherweight division, he's not that big. He's 5'5", five five. and yeah, he's kind of stocky, but Volkanovski hasn't beat in that area, man. That guy's built like a tank. And speaking of Gegard Mousasi, it does bring back memories of when he left the UFC and why he left the UFC. For those who don't know, Gegard Mousasi was on a five-fight win streak in the UFC. He hit his prime in that organization, probably the prime of his entire career when it comes to his performances. He beats Telus Latis, who was a contender. He knocks out Thiago Sa- in the very first round, gets revenge on Uriah Hall, TKOs him, and then TKOs Chris Wyman, who was one of the top contenders of the division at the time, and he was supposed to be next in line to fight Robert Whittaker. He had a chance to fight for the title, but then he left the UFC right on the cusp of a title shot, and it was mainly because of the money. I forgot if he went through negotiations for the Robert Whittaker fight, but man, that was a missed opportunity in my opinion, because he definitely has a shot at beating Robert Whittaker. Even today, he does, but especially back then, in 2017, Gegard Mousasi definitely had a big shot at becoming the UFC middleweight champion and making more money than he does now in Bellator. Man, that's kind of a bummer. Not even just about the money, the fans' perspective. Who did not want to see that fight? Gegard Mousasi versus Robert Whittaker would have been insane back then, man. And it would have kept the division even more competitive than it is today. Imagine Mousasi as a champion beating Whittaker. Then have to fight Yoel Romero. I don't know if he would beat Yoel Romero, but that would have been something to watch. He's great off his back and much better on the feet. He's extremely composed in front of all different styles. The guy fought Mark Hunt. The guy fought Mark Hunt in heavyweight and submitted him. I don't think he's at the least bit going to lose composure in front of Yoel Romero, like so many other fighters have. And then you got Israel Adesanya in there. Adesanya versus Musasi would have been insane to watch. Although I do think he would have lost to Izzy. It would have been a very interesting striking match where Musasi would even attempt some takedowns here and there. Man, every time I think about Musasi and Bellator, it always makes me wonder, what if? What if he never left? You don't normally see fighters leave as the number one contender of the division. And you definitely don't normally see champions turn down number one contender fights. Francis Ngannou actually turned down a Derek Lewis rematch. You can't fault him though. When you think about it that way and the fact that you hear Ngannou say he wants to become an active champion, he always wants to fight, the guy's never injured, the guy's never hurt in a fight so he can keep going, you would think, wait, why would he turn down Derek Lewis? He's scared. You're already going to see a lot of that coming out of this. He's still scared of Derek Lewis. If they fight again, it will be the same thing and Lewis will win a decision. But here's the thing, man. The guy just fought Stipe. Even though he didn't get hurt, he went through a training camp and winning a title is a big thing. He probably wants to celebrate and go around. It's a reason why he said he'll be ready for July or August. They offered him the fight in June. Yeah, the same night that Davis Figueredo is going to be fighting Brandon Moreno. And Ganu turned it down, Derek Lewis is up for it. Derek Lewis is always up for a fight. I mean, the guy took on Daniel Cormier on short notice. Derek Lewis does not care, man. But here's the most important thing coming out of this. We're going to see it eventually, 100%. And because we're going to see it eventually means that they're not going to do the John Jones fight. That's dead in the water. Some people are speculating that uh, Ngannou wants to fight Jones and that's why he's waiting this out. But it doesn't matter if Ngannou waits it out. 
if the UFC is pursuing another fight after negotiating with John Jones, and it's been public that it's not going well, and that's an understatement. I mean, it's logical to think that John Jones is asking for somewhere around $50 million because that's what his coach is talking about, and the fact that John Jones is also saying that $10 million is way too low. I don't think the UFC is going to pursue that fight if that's how the negotiations are going to go. They're going to go straight to Derek Lewis, which is another big fight. It's not going to do that much less in pay-per-view, and Derek Lewis is not going to get paid as much as John Jones. That's the fight they're going to pursue. It's a fight Ngannou wants to come back to, right that wrong, and frankly, it's a fight that Derek Lewis wants to right wrong as well. He believes that fight was a loss for both of them and it's going to bring out a different level of these guys than their first fight they're definitely going to go for it this time as they both do not like to put on that kind of performance I do think Francis Ngannou beats Derek Lewis 100% and what does this mean for John Jones the fact that Ngannou and Jones is probably not going to happen and probably never going to happen unless the UFC compromises with Jones or Jones compromises with the UFC I don't know if we're going to see Jones fight again I mean that's what he said he pretty much said he's not going to fight if this is the way it's going to be he doesn't need to fight anybody. He deserves the pay he's asking for, and I agree with that. But man, I don't know what his managers are doing. They really need to negotiate with the UFC a little bit better. Get something going on here. You got to compromise for now and probably ask for more money later. You can't just ask for the world right at the table. That's pretty much how business goes. I understand he's been doing so much, and he's a big star. He's a great fighter. He deserves a lot of pay. But you can't ask for Conor McGregor money out of nowhere. Getting paid a certain amount for every fight, and then all of a sudden asking for Conor McGregor money. That's not great business. We don't know the specifics, but the way it seems like the John Jones negotiations have been going has not been the smartest, has not been the most logical. And do it's also not very logical the way Conor and Nate Diaz are going at each other. It's kind of cringe, man. Nate Diaz and Conor are going back at it. They're talking about yachts. They're talking about Cabo. They're talking about everything and even Habib. I've never seen someone live so rent-free in so many fighters' heads the way Habib does. Habib has real estate in places that he doesn't even know about. It's absolutely hilarious. Even though Conor and Nate are trash-talking each other about each other, Habib is always brought up and they both find a way to say like they beat Habib in a certain way. Nate brings up that he smacked Habib even though Habib is the guy that choked out Connor. Connor saying that Habib sat in the bus and he punked him out in a real fight. Hilarious. And Habib is just sitting back doing his thing. Doesn't think about Connor. Doesn't think about Nate Diaz. Just goes on with his life for bigger, better things. He's cornering fighters. He's helping younger guys. He's doing all this stuff as a fighter, as a martial artist, without paying attention to his leftovers. I mean, technically he never fought Nate Diaz, but you know what I'm saying. Absolutely hilarious, man. And speaking of Habib and his opinions about the sport right now, so he believes, for instance, that uh, Zabit Magomed Sharipov is the best featherweight in the world. I guess he trained with Zabit recently, and he claims now that Zabit is the best featherweight in the world. This is something I've been saying for a while now. The only thing that Zabit has going against him is his cardio. If he fixes his cardio, I think he beats everybody. His boxing is phenomenal. His defense everywhere is phenomenal. He has some of the best kicks in the division. Probably only surpassed by Yai. He's probably the overall best grappler in the division when it comes to wrestling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, all that stuff. He's the tallest guy. He's the longest guy. He just doesn't have power, but he has a great amount of speed. And he uses his reach very well. Great chin. He has all the tools to become the best featherweight on the planet. But the real question is, where is the guy? What's happened to Zabit? What's happened to him and Yair Rodriguez? Where did these guys where did these guys go? I've been waiting for Zabit to fight for years now. The guy hasn't fought since he beat Kelvin Cater on November 9th of 2019. And he fought twice that year. He fought twice in 2018 and twice in 2017. The guys had six fights in the last four years. They were chasing that Yara Rodriguez fight again, but then it fell through because Rodriguez had an ankle injury. Don't tell me it's just that nobody wants to fight the guy. Because Zabit is sitting comfortably at number 3. Max Holloway is open. Maybe they can have that fight go on. That's always been the fight I wanted to see. But here's the thing, man. Max Holloway deserves a title shot, 100%. If Max Holloway wants to fight again before Volkanovski and Brian Ortega throw down, which is going to be later in the year because they're doing the Ultimate Fighter, Holloway's probably going to wait until next year to fight. So might as well do him and Zabit. Why not? Number one contender fight. Zabit's number three. He beat Kelvin Cater as well. I think that's a fight everybody would like to see. Five rounds would spell trouble for Zabit. But he's at a state in the division right now. He's number three where he's got to fight five round fights. It's just going to happen. You can't sit around for three rounds. I mean, he had a main event against Kelvin Cater for three rounds, which is crazy. We have to see him fight for five rounds. He's been training for a couple of years now without competition, probably working on that cardio. Let's see it tested. I want to see him fight Max Holloway. I mean, there is still Yair Rodriguez, but I don't know what's going on with him. Chan Zong Jung's number five, and he's fighting Dan Ige. Kelvin Cater needs some time off after that horrendous damage he took from Holloway. There's nobody really else for Zabit to fight besides Yair and Max Holloway. 
if Yair is not up for it or whatever is going on with him, well, let's do Zabit versus Holloway. Holloway should probably take up a fight as well. I mean, waiting out another year without competition for Holloway would be a bit too much. The guy had three fights in the last two years. I mean, the guy fought once in 2020. If he's going to fight once in 2021 and then once in 2020, he'll be wasting a lot of time, man. And Zabit needs to fight as well. That's the fight I'd definitely be looking forward to. So Habib's claim is pretty interesting. And a lot of people do believe this as well, that Zabit is the best. But here's another claim from Habib. And it's probably something I can get behind. Kamar Usman is the number one pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world. This I do agree with. John Jones is a thing. Yes, John Jones is currently on the best streak in the UFC. But the guy is so inactive and he's not as dominant. At what point... Can someone surpass that? Kamar Usman is finishing guys and he's dominating guys. It's one or the other. It's either he finishes them or he dominates them. John with John Jones is not that same thing. John Jones' last two fights have been very controversial to the point where people believe you lost. You have never heard that for Kamar Usman. Colby Covington came the closest, where he won three rounds out of the five, but Usman finished him. He just finished Gilbert Burns. He is currently the only fighter on the roster who has wins over the top four. Not even Habib can claim that. Right now, off the top of my head, I can't think of any fighter in history who has done that. Maybe GSP, maybe Jose Aldo, maybe Demetrius Johnson, and maybe John Jones at some point where he was cleaning out the old fighters. But right now, Usman is the only fighter on the roster who has done this. He's defeated Colby Covington, who's the number one contender. He's defeated Gilbert Burns, who's the number two contender. He defeated Leon Edwards back in the day. It's a different version of Leon, but technically he beat the number three guy. And he beat Jorge Masvidal, who's number four. And he's rematching him currently. On top of that, he has a win over the number 8 and the number 10, Damian Maya and Tyron Woodley. Usman has pretty much beaten his hardest competition in the division already. He started as a champion by beating the hardest competition. Maybe besides Wonderboy, he could pull some interesting problems. But Colby Covington, Gilbert Burns, Jorge Masvidal. Those are potentially his hardest fights that could possibly happen for him. And he already beat them at the beginning of his run. I think right now, you would probably have to look over things and put Kamar Usman as potentially the number one pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world. Yes, John Jones has that long history of what he's done, but at some point where you're so inactive and your fights are so close, you're not dominant, there has to be a point where a fighter who is more dominant than you, at some point that champion has to surpass John Jones. Right, how far back do you look for pound for pound? Do we look all the way back when John Jones first started until now? I don't think that would make a lot of sense because you would have to look at a bunch of different fighters like a Frankie Edgar or something who would have a resume to be pound for pound one of the best fighters in the world. Where is the cutoff? So I currently think that Kamar Usman is the number one fighter in the world. I think John Jones is number two. They have Volkanovski as number three, but it's tough to say either him or Adesanya. They're very close. Volkanovski has had some close fights and Adesanya did lose, but he lost going up a division, which is the whole purpose of pound for pound. Volkanovski's never done that in the UFC. When you talk about their original weight classes, Adesanya is more dominant than Volkanovski is. Volkanovski and Adesanya are interchangeable, but I would say Adesanya is number three, and you have to give him some credit for the way he performed against Jan Blachowicz. He did perform pretty well, even though he lost. The guy was greatly undersized and fought a chess match with the light heavyweight champion of the world. So I say Adesanya is number three, Volkanovski is number four, Francis Agano, number five, I can see that he just beat Stipe, he's on a good streak. Number six is Poirier. Poirier is in a weird position because, yes, he went up a weight class, which is the whole purpose of pound for pound. He's done very well in the lightweight division. He did pretty well in the featherweight division. And he has some really good streaks going on. But he's not undisputed champion, and he has several losses in the lightweight division. He's above Stipe. This is where I don't agree with Stipe and Nganu should be above Poirier. Nganu above Stipe because he just beat him, and he's on a great streak. He's the current heavyweight champion. Stipe has done so much in his career. The guy literally just beat Daniel Cormier twice. There is nothing that Dustin has ever done in his entire career that comes close to Stipe's wins over Cormier. Stipe is one of the greatest fighters of all time. He's the greatest heavyweight of all time. Because of one loss, you cannot deter of everything he's done. They still have Adesanya number four, and he's coming off a loss. Stipe comes off a loss, and he draws four placements. Actually, Adesanya went up a placement. He was number five, now he's number four. Where Stipe loses, and he goes from number three to number seven. The disrespect of Stipe continues. I understand he drops because he lost in his own division, but that's a bit too much of a drop. So I would see Ngannou number five, Stipe number six, Poirier number seven, Blahovich number eight. Yeah, I can probably see that. Him and Holloway, I think, are pretty close. Holloway's number nine. Yeah, I can see that. Figueredo number 10. That makes sense. If Figueroa goes up to Bantamweight and just steamrolls opponents, he's going to see himself in the top five. Then you have Justin Gagey at number 11. They have Piotr Jan, Robert Whitaker, and Aljamain Sterling below him. I don't agree with that. I think Piotr Jan and Robert Whitaker are for sure above Justin Gagey. And then him and Sterling is pretty debatable. 
Conor McGregor number 15, Conor should not be in the top 15. I understand he's a double champ. I understand in the past, like five years ago, he did some stuff, but that was five years ago. I mean, how back do we look? How, how back does pound for pound matter? Is BJ Penn retired? Because if he's not, how is he not top 15? The guy was a double champ as well. He has several wins in the welterweight division, gave GSP all he could handle. How is he not in there? Connor's not coming off a good run as of late. How's he above Colby Covington? How's he above Charles Oliveira? Charles Oliveira is literally the definition of pound for pound. Connor's number six. Oliveira's number three. Oliveira went two divisions just like Connor did. Even though he didn't have the same kind of success in the past, he has more success as of late. A lot more success as of late. Yes, Connor went up to the welterweight division, but he's never really fought a welterweight. And the guys he beat at welterweight are not contenders there, or not reasonable contenders in that division. They're not even reasonable contenders in the lightweight division. I mean, you can even make an argument that Tony Ferguson is still above Conor McGregor in terms of their most recent performances. How is Jorge not above Conor? How is Leon Edwards not above Conor? How is Glover Teixeira not above Conor? The guys who are doing very well in their careers right now, the top contenders of like each division, how are they not credited? to be above Conor McGregor. How's Frankie Edgar not number one? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The guy fought in three different weight classes, a contender or champion in all three different weight classes. He was a lightweight champion, defended his belt. He fought monsters in that division. The guy wasn't even cutting weight. He goes down to the featherweight division, top contender for years on end, fought the champion twice, went down to bantamweight and beat one of the contenders, holding his own even though he's washed up a bit. How's Frankie not a top 15 if Connor is? And now let's get a little bit serious. There's been a tragic event that happened in amateur kickboxing a couple days ago in Ecuador, where I hope I pronounce his name right, Yoel Kowski. Well, Yoel Kowski passed away after an amateur kickboxing fight where he allegedly, I'm only going to say allegedly because I don't know if the details are 100% accurate, he allegedly passed away due to a brainstem hemorrhage from what it seemed to be a high kick to the back of his head even though they were wearing headgear and shin pads. There has been some recent studies that headgear can cause even more damage to the head if you take a blow. They're more necessary for cuts than concussions. I don't know if they were paramedics, I don't know if they were coaches, refs, officials, whoever they were. They start to lift his leg so the blood could get to the brain. This is a normal practice whenever someone gets choked unconscious, right? You get the blood to the brain so they wake up. But the thing is, he allegedly passed away due to a brainstem hemorrhage. Getting the blood to the brain of someone who has a brainstem hemorrhage is only going to worsen the condition. Where were the professionals? Where were the paramedics? Where were the people that needed to be there? Every time you have these kind of competitions, every time you have a kickboxing fight, amateur pro fight, whatever it is, no matter what combat sport it is, you need these people on the sidelines. You need them on standby in case something tragic like this happens. Because there was a possibility that Yoel Kowalski could have probably been saved if the right people were there at the right time. Lifting the legs to get the blood to the brain possibly accelerated his passing because he passed away very quickly after this. But this is just so sad, man. A 25-year-old chasing his dreams for his dreams that take his life, pretty much. The dreams so many young people have, all the guys you see in the UFC, all the kickboxers and boxers you see, they all had the same dream that Kowalski had. And it just shows you the kind of risks that everybody is willing to take. What happened to Kowalski is something that all the fighters say they have fully accepted when it comes to fighting in the cage, when it comes to fighting in the ring. What happened that night is a realization of what the fighters are putting themselves through every single time you see them compete. Every single time. And it gives these fighters so much more respect for what they put themselves through. The guys who go through 50 professional fights, 100 amateur fights. How can you not have more respect for these guys after seeing something like this happen? And this is another reason why John Jones, why other fighters, not just John Jones, every fighter deserve higher pay. This is the reason. This is what they put themselves through. Now, there could have been something wrong with Kowalski coming into the fight. He could have been already compromised. It could have been a bad weight cut. He could have probably had something wrong with his brain, and the kick just ruptured whatever was there. This is entirely possible, because you don't normally see this kind of thing happen. You don't normally see one blow cause this certain thing in combat sports. It's usually after a fighter is already compromised coming in. We don't know those kind of details. We don't know what was wrong with him. So rest in peace, Yoel Kowalski. He did something a lot of people would never do. He went and chased his dreams. And these are the kind of things that we have to remember every single time. Even the amateur fighters in a faraway country, we are all connected in a way. We're all in one community. Whenever this sort of thing happens, it's a heavy blow that we can all feel. And it brings that reality to everybody. That every time you watch one of these guys compete, this is a possibility of happening. It's not likely, but the fact that it is a possibility. And these guys are honing their craft so much so something like this would never happen to them. 
you give so much more appreciation and respect for these fighters. Now let's get right to the questions. And we're going to start with the most liked comment, which is going to go to CT. Who is the biggest dark horse to fight for a title this year in each division? This one's interesting. So heavyweight. Does Surreal Gone count as a uh, dark horse? Because I would probably say him. So I would say Surreal Gone. I think Ngannou has two fights this year as a champion. It'll be Derek Lewis and then I think Surreal Gone. If he gets past Volkov, that is. So it's either Gone or Volkov. Light heavyweight. I'll go with Yuri Prochaska. I do think he'll lose to Rakic. But if he beats Rakic, he would absolutely be the dark horse. I think right now he is the dark horse. Just clear cut throughout the division. Middleweight, I'll say Marvin Vittori. Welterweight, I'll say Wonderboy Thompson. But I don't see him fighting the champion this year. You got Leon Edwards fighting, got Colby Covington out there. They're going to get their shot before Steven Thompson does. That's just, as unfortunate as it is, that's probably how it's going to be. But I think Wonderboy right now is the dark horse or Vicente Luque just throughout the entire division right now. Lightweight would have to be Charles Oliveira. He has the least attention out of the top contenders. And he is probably the best fighter out of the top contenders. Potentially. In featherweight now, I would say the real dark horse is Dan Ige. He gets underestimated so much, but I do not see him fight for the belt. I will say fighting for the belt this year, the dark horse could be maybe Yair Rodriguez or Zabit. But given the fact that Volkanovski is probably only going to fight Ortega and then maybe Holloway, and that's it. For the entire year. It's hard to really say. I'll stick with Zabit for the fact that there's a possibility that he could fight Max Holloway and then get a title shot afterward. So Zabit would probably my guess for the year. Bantamweight. I think Murab Dvajvili is the real dark horse of the Bantamweight division. But to fight for the belt this year, I'll say is Corey Sanhagen. But keep your eye on Kyler Phillips, man. That guy's legit. Kyler Phillips may be very special in a year to two years time. The flyweight division to fight for the championship is going to be Eskar Askarov, right? He's a huge dark horse. He's always been. But then when you look at the division, there's Brandon Roy Val. He's a dark horse. David Vorak, I think that's how I pronounce it. He's also a big dark horse of the flyweight division. The women's bantamweight division is probably going to go to Irina Aldana. Women's flyweight may be Lauren Murphy. And women's strawweight is Yan Zhaonan. Then we go to the next question by Durzal Blint. Out of the three champions from Africa, Usman, Adesanya, and Nganu, which do you see losing their title first? They all have a chance. Um, if Usman gets past Jorge, and let's say he beats Wonderboy, I don't think anybody beats him. Usman has the biggest threat because he's fighting first. He's fighting Masvidal, who's not going to be easy. So he has the potential to lose first out of the three champs. But... Just looking at their style and looking at what can happen, I'd probably say Adesanya might be the first one to lose if they all were to fight at the same time, you know? I think Vittori can give him problems. I think Whitaker can give him problems. I think Kedanier can give him problems. I think Darren Till could put up an interesting fight, even though he's always injured. A Derek Brunson rematch, uh, I don't know. I think Izzy beats Brunson, but the wrestling and the patience from Brunson can pose a different kind of problem for Adesanya than the first time. The thing with Ngannou is, Derek Lewis beats him by puncher's chance, I think. Just how usual, he times that right hand, catches you perfectly as you make a mistake. It's more than puncher's chance, but it's just an easy way to sum it up. Surreal Gun's a problem. Volkov could be a problem, but I don't think so. And is a problem. With Usman, he's pretty much beat the hardest competition for him already, right? He has Wonderboy and then a Jorge rematch. Luke could pose some difficulty for him, but I think Usman should be the strongest out of the three African champions. And then we go to Mark Valdez. Can you do a nightmare matchup for every champion? The twist is the nightmare matchup can be a form of any weight class and face the champion with size parity. For example, I think a middleweight Dominic Cruz is a nightmare matchup for Adesanya. So I am going to make the official nightmare matchup for each division. But for this one, this would be interesting. So it all comes down to styles. It's very hard to really be accurate with this. Just a fun thing to do, I guess. Because heavyweights are generally the least skilled. In theory, you would want to pick the most skilled guy against a heavyweight. So for instance... I can pick like a Pietro Jan, a heavyweight Pietro Jan in the heavyweight division, or a heavyweight Dominic Cruz. When you think about that kind of style in the heavyweight division, they'd beat anybody. So against Francis Ngannou, yeah, I'd probably say a heavyweight Dominic Cruz would be perfect against Ngannou. Work that cardio, move around the place, very hard to hit to the head, the kind of movement that would make Ngannou work, constant takedowns and feints. Yeah, a heavyweight Dominic Cruz would be very difficult fight for Ngannou. But a fight I would love to see is Ngannou versus a heavyweight Davidson Figueredo. That kind of fight would be the most insane fight in history. Just all combat sports. But then we go to Jan Blachowicz. I would say probably a Kamara Usman would beat uh, Jan Blachowicz. Constant pressure, constant takedowns, superior wrestling, very strong and long, good jab, good fundamental boxing, not doing anything too crazy and not staying from a distance too much. You got to put the pressure on Jan because Jan's takedown defense needs to be exploited more. Nobody really goes for takedowns against this guy. He's been fighting a lot of strikers, but in the past, you saw guys like Gustafsson take him to the ground constantly. 
So I will say Kamaru Usman. Then Israel Adesanya, I say Jan Blachowicz. But uh, without going to that, we'll say maybe a Piotr Jan. Strong takedowns, strong boxing skills, good kicks, good fundamentals, just like Jan showed. Patience and counterpunching power that Izzy does not want to fall into. I think a Piotr Jan would be an interesting style for Izzy. Then there is also Kamaru Usman. Usman has a style that would give anybody trouble, to be honest here. But without going to Usman again, I'll probably say Piotr Jan. And then for Kamar Usman, I would say if there was a welterweight Brian Ortega, Usman's not going to go to the ground with him, chokes on the feet, durable chin that Gilbert Burns does not have, the speed factor, the power, the creativity that Ortega 2.0 has, yeah, i definitely say a welterweight Brian Ortega is a problem for Kamar Usman. Now we'll say Dustin Poirier. We'll just count him as a champion in this situation. Who would be tougher for a Dustin Poirier? Call me crazy, but I think a Davis and Figueredo. Guy who will be able to take his punches, walk him down, and beat him in the power punching, as well as threaten him with takedowns and show superior takedown defense with some insane chokes if ever Dustin wants to get on the legs. It seems like whenever Dustin gets cracked and hurt is when he's trading with you or he's in the pocket with you. Such as with Justin Gaethje, such as with Dan Hooker, even some moments with Conor McGregor. If someone's able to take his punches and return on him, pressure him constantly and make him very uncomfortable against the cage, I think there would be someone like uh, Davis Figueredo. But then again, I think someone like Kamaru Usman would beat him. I think it is Adesanya will give him trouble. I think someone like Jan Blachowicz would give him some big trouble. Jorge Mazo would be an interesting competitive fight. And then for uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, man, that's tough because Volkanovsky is so well-rounded. He's very defensively sound, and he has some really good attacks when he's point fighting with you. Not afraid to go to war. He has some great power in his hands. Good gas tank. Hard guy to take to the ground. You know what I think will give him problems? Someone like Israel Adesanya. Very long range. Hard guy to take to the ground. Hard guy to headhunt. Really good at checking leg kicks. Pretty much outpoint him, being the sniper that he is. And then for Aljamain Sterling, Piotr Jan, <laughs> that'd be the easy answer. No, but um, I'd say Gilbert Burns. Yeah, I'd say Gilbert Burns will shut off Aljamain Sterling everywhere. Far better striker, much more power, great amount of speed, defend all the takedowns, even if he gets taken to the ground, it's nothing to be worried about. Yeah, definitely Gilbert Burns. And for Davis and Figueredo, I'd say probably someone like Max Holloway. Get in and out, away from the power shots, faint on them, get a lot of those big right hands coming out there. Just picking at him the entire time. Make him pay for a bunch of those mistakes, man. The lateral movement will be very effective against Figgy. Now, Amanda Nunes is just Valentina Shevchenko. If I could think of a straw weight that could potentially give uh, Nunes some trouble, maybe you want to yell Jacek and give her a lot of problems. Really good striking defense will not get taken to the ground. A lot of good jabs there. Very good pulls on the big right hands and counter her. Yeah, I actually say either Shevchenko or Joanna would give Nunes some trouble. And as for Valentina Shevchenko, I honestly think there's not a fighter or a style that Shevchenko cannot deal with. You can go down to Yang Zhaonan, you can go to Rose Namajunas, you can go to Mana Nunes. I think Shevchenko can deal with everybody, to be honest. I don't think she beats everybody, but there is not a style that gives her problems. And then Zhang Weili. I would say someone like Nunez. Zhang has very short punches. She likes to stay in the pocket. And she meets the kind of power that Nunez can bring in a fight with the reach that she has and the boxing ability and the takedown threat with the athletic footwork that she has. I think Nunez could give someone like uh, Zhang Weili a lot of problems. And then we go to Samurai Saud. The new Venom deal. How will it be, good and bad, personalizing fight kits and Dana John feud? Well, they recently just displayed how the uniform is going to look. And I guess I like them. I mean, they look very, very similar. There's just a few more lines on the design. Like they added some lines to it. Here's the thing why I don't like the colors. They're a little bit too solid for me, man. I liked how I liked how they were doing it with some of the recent Reebok gear where they were kind of blending it. So it wasn't so in your face. Like the red really shines out there and I don't like that. I think it's too distracting, but I guess some people would like that. I think the design itself is a little bit better. It's not as bland, there's more detailed, but why are they doing it like this again? Can we get some unique designs that each fighter can personally put on their gear? Remember how it used to be before with Chuck Liddell's ice shorts and you had Tito Ortiz fire shorts and you had Mirko Krokop's checker shorts? I mean, those were so iconic. It gave each fighter an individuality that they don't have anymore. Even though the designs are a little bit different, they're still the same shorts that they wore with Reebok. I don't like how everybody's in unison with the same gear, but just like different lines here and there, you know what I'm saying? Boxing does it way better. And do what really makes me think, what if they allowed the fighters today to kind of just make their own design and get their own shorts so they can wear in every single fight? Like, what would Adesanya wear? Would he have iconic shorts? Would Francis Agano show up with something? What would Figueredo wear? What would Kamar Usman wear? What would all these guys wear in today's world? We'll just never know now because there's no uniqueness to the aesthetic. I don't know, man. The Venom gear looks very similar to how Reebok did it. Just little differences, not much at all. As for the pay, 
they're paying two thousand more dollars uh i think for every fighter i mean i guess it's more money so and the personalizing is pretty cool you could change the colors and stuff i think it's pretty cool and then dana john feud i don't think there's like a feud man i think it's all business i think john is actually the one that's kind of uh taking it more personal and it's been showing to be honest i mean it looked like he walked to the negotiation table and just said 50 mil and then got a little bit mad when they didn't agree to it so like yeah i don't think dana's upset at john at all i think he's just being a businessman as he should and then with a prison mic they say strength doesn't play a role in fighting but i've noticed most elite level athletes are really strong lifting wise like jones and ganu usman volkanovsky etc in your opinion how high of a role does strength actually play now firstly all of these fighters are not just strong they're also very skilled and technical out of the names you listed right there those four fighters three out of the four jones usman and volkanovsky specifically even though they're all very strong they are more skilled than they are strong because at the level that these guys fight it's going to take more than just strength to be able to win at the highest level of the game but when you have outliers like francis aganu i'll give you one jessica andrage that type of overwhelming strength and power is something you don't normally see and it's going to cause some unusual results any form of outlier is going to shake up the landscape. This is not exclusive for strength. It could be speed. It could be skill. It could be intelligence. It could be timing. It could be precision. When you're an outlier in any given area of the game, you're going to cause results that are not normally seen. And you're going to be able to beat some of the most skilled fighters. Strength is going to be important no matter what. It generally will depend on what kind of style you have or what kind of style you're fighting up against, right? So for wrestling, strength is going to matter more for that than anything else. Clinch work is where strength is also going to trump a lot. This is where you see Francis Agano, for an example, over strength almost every opponent he's ever been up against. Even though he doesn't have the skill in the clinch or skill in the takedowns, takedown defense that his opponents have, he can trump over it with the athleticism, the strength, combined with the amount of skill that he has. Using strength, you can get out of positions or into positions a lot easier. For an example, look at Jessica Andrade. Andrade is not the most technical fighter in the world, but pound for pound, she's one of the strongest fighters in the UFC. Might even be the strongest fighter in the UFC. She doesn't have the most technical takedowns, but she's able to just lift you up and slam you on your back. And that amount of strength is a game changer. She's able to be one of the top contenders in two different weight classes because of her strength. It also comes with her cardio, which is a little bit weird. She has power strength and cardio at the same time. She credits that to her childhood on a farm. So yes, strength is going to matter. Does it matter the most? No, not necessarily. Skills and techniques are going to be the most important thing in the game. Strength can only take you so far. You need to be in the correct positions for you to use your strength. Skill and technique can allow you to avoid those positions where the stronger guy can trump you in. And even that, it's going to require a tremendous amount of strength to overcome great skill. You're going to need outliers like Francis Ngannou and Jessica Andrade to be able to do what they do in order to make skill not matter as much. When you talk about like Kamar Usman or even John Jones and stuff, they're not going to trump all levels of skill using their strength. They still need to be very technical, which they are. Jones, when he was fighting the smaller, older, light heavyweights that all would belong in middleweight today, yes, he had the strength advantage over all of them, but he was so much more well-rounded. Everybody was so one-dimensional compared to him. The skill set was entirely different. And then with a Devin Shearer, how would 2015 Conor McGregor do against today's top featherweights? So the Conor that beat Jose Aldo, how would he do against Chan Sung Jung, Yari Rodriguez, Zabit, Ryan Ortega, Max Holloway, and Alexander Volkanovsky. Well, I think he could be Chan Sung Jung. Chan Sung Jung sometimes runs into punches. He can be a bit defensively reckless, and that is never a good thing against Conor McGregor. Those are the easiest guys for him to fight. And I think just eventually that's going to happen. I think Chan Sung Jung would run into a left hand. Even though he'd be winning some parts of the fight, he's a very good boxer. Just in every single fight, he kind of just rushes in too much. Yair Rodriguez, now this would be a hard fight for Conor. A patient Yair that he showed in some of his recent fights. Kicking from a distance, good boxing, gets away from a lot of the left hands, at least pulls away from them. I think Yair would give Conor a run for his money, right? A lot of the leg kicks would land, a lot of the head kicks that Conor doesn't normally come across. Even attempting some takedowns here and there, Yair is pretty capable off his back when he's not fighting such a high-level grappler like a Frankie Edgar, for example. Yeah, I think Yair would put up a competitive fight with Conor. Now, Zabit... I'll say Zabit beats Connor. Both have similar cardio, kind of gas out after the second round. Connor at Featherweight had a better gas tank where he showed against Max Holloway. He went three rounds and looked pretty good doing it. A little bit tired in the third, but I just don't think that's very different than Zabit. Zabit starts getting tired like, what, halfway through the third round? He really starts gassing out. But here's the thing, man better boxing defense, 
He's longer than Connor. He has the grappling and the wrestling to completely destroy Connor. Amazing leg kicks. He fights very well on Southpaw as well, landing those outside leg kicks repeatedly. Good check left hooks and check right hooks in case Connor extends forward with the left hand because he has to be the one that gets in on Zabit. That's not the normal thing for Connor. He's only had to do that once ever, and that was against Nate Diaz, and you saw how differently he was fighting. Zabit stylistically is one of Connor's hardest fights in the entire UFC. So I definitely say Zabit would be Connor, 100%. Brian Ortega, he has a chin to take the left hand. He has the kicks. He has the takedown threat. If he takes down Connor, that's a wrap. No pun intended. That is over. He has some decent boxing, at least today. Good elbows, good killer instinct. I say Ortega definitely has a really good shot at beating Connor. The leg kicks could potentially keep Connor in place to not use that elusive footwork that he used to have. Ortega does not really rush in from a distance. He's always there to counter you. He has the different kind of techniques that Connor's never seen before that comes with guys that fight in 2021 compared to 2015. So I definitely say Ortega would probably beat Connor McGregor. Max Holloway definitely beats Connor 100%. Very difficult fight. And then Alexander Volkanovsky, again, very difficult fight for Connor. The leg kicks, the power, the takedown threat, the chin, the feints that Connor's never seen before. Yeah, just a different time when you fight guys like Holloway, Volkanovsky, Ortega Zabit, and Yair. And then we go to Cyclone. Francis has discussed future boxing matches. How does Francis do in boxing? Then Pitbull versus the top UFC featherweights and lightweights. How does Ngannou do in boxing? I think he can have some of the more success when it comes to UFC fighters going into boxing because heavyweight boxers aren't the most technical. You could really get by due to punching power. This is something Deontay Wilder showed everybody. Deontay Wilder was a champion for years off of his punching power, his reach, and athleticism. The thing going against France is why he won't be as successful as Wilder. Ngannou does not have the gas tank to go 12 rounds like Wilder could. I think Francis would start gassing out like 4th, 5th round. So, potentially, he can knock out anybody. That's a given. He's more technical with his hands than people give him credit. Would he beat someone like Tyson Fury? Never in a million years. Would he beat someone like Anthony Joshua? I don't think so. Would he beat Wilder? I don't think so. I mean, it's a hard fight. Wilder and Ngannou would be pretty competitive for the first, what, four or five rounds? But then Wilder would take over if it goes past that. So, I think Francis could beat some lower-level guys, maybe outside top 10. But definitely not going to be a future superstar or future champion. And then Pitbull versus the top featherweight and top lightweight. I'll do top five for both. So lightweight, I think he loses the Ferguson. I think he beats Chandler. I think he loses the Oliveira. I think he loses the Gaethje, even though that's a very interesting fight. And then Poirier, that would be a close fight. I lean Poirier, but don't sleep on Pitbull on that one, man. The punching power, the composure, the pressure, the kicks, the takedown defense, the angles with his punches. Yeah, that would be pretty difficult for Dustin Poirier. And then in the featherweight division, I think he beats Chan Sung Jong, even though it would be an interesting fight. I think Yair Rodriguez beats him. I think he keeps his distance the whole time. One of Pitbull's biggest weaknesses is the fact that he's not quick on his feet. He doesn't move quickly. So I think he'll have a very hard time catching up to Yair. Same thing with Zabit. I think he loses the Zabit. Brian Ortega. I think Ortega would win. I think he's durable enough to get through some of the power punches and start hurting Pitbull in the fight. I think technically Pitbull should be superior to Ortega, but I think because of Ortega's durability and his ability to come back in the fight and hurt the chin of Pitbull, I don't think Pitbull's chin is good enough to take all the blows from Ortega. I think Ortega would eventually TKO him or submit him after dropping him. Max Holloway. Now this is interesting. Holloway could keep his distance similar to the way Yair and Zabit do, but whenever he strikes, he gets in so close on you. And that's where always the danger is going to be for him. Pitbull is a very good counter puncher. He has very good angles with his punches. He's a hard guy to hit clean. He has really good leg kicks as well. He can chop down on that leg of Holloway throughout the duration of the fight. I can see Holloway winning on points, but I do see like Pitbull winning two out of the three being a very controversial fight. And then Alexander Volkanovsky, another fight that Pitbull is very capable in. In fact, I probably favor Pitbull just slightly in this one. After seeing Volkanovski get dropped so easily by Holloway in the first round, that is not good going to a fight with Pitbull. Pitbull can catch him behind the ear. He can find the overhands behind the guard. He can feint on Volkanovski to get him to react a bit. Volkanovski likes to dig in with his punches and go head first sometimes. That's where he's going to get hurt. Whenever Volkanovski decides to be aggressive and engage in combinations or engage in some blitz, he is going to get hurt because of that. Volkanovski would walk on eggshells in that fight. There's a lot of things that they both do very similarly, but with Pitbull being faster, showing more punching power, and definitely better precision. And then we go to Canal McGlue. What's more impressive? A, Francis dominates John for five rounds, or B, John knocks Francis out cold inside the first two rounds. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. 
oh, those are both highly unlikely. But I think Francis beating Jones for five rounds is a bit more impressive. If he could beat Jones for five rounds, it would establish that nobody can fight with this guy. If he could beat Jones for five rounds, nobody's messing with him. We're going to see him go on a win streak that we've never seen before. Francis beating Jones for five rounds means that he has the cardio to go five rounds. He's more technically sound, shuts down the wrestling, shows better skill in the striking. It will show us things about Francis that are very hard to fathom. If John knocks Francis out, it would be because he was more skilled, he's more technical. It's something that a lot of people already know about Jones, right? Francis walks into something like a spinning elbow and gets knocked out. Yeah, Francis has probably the best chin in the UFC. Not talking about pound for pound, just straight up the heavyweight with the best chin. It's Francis. So it'd be crazy to see him get flatlined, but John knocking him out wouldn't be as crazy as Francis shutting out John for 25 minutes of a fight. Nobody's ever done that to John Jones. And Nganu's known to gas out pretty quickly. Then we go to Dana Pink. Who wins in their prime? Adesanya versus Rockhold? Adesanya. GSP versus Usman? Usman. Sahudo versus Cruz? Sahudo. Habib versus Usman? Usman. Usman versus Silva? I don't know, man. That's a tough fight. Silva's much bigger than him. He has a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well. Far better on the feet. Far better footwork. Usman's not really a double leg in the center of the cage kind of guy. But then again, he could do similar to what Chris Weidman did. But with a shorter reach and probably not the same kind of power. Ah, I'm back and forth right now. You know, I'll go with Silva because he surprised me so many times. Habib versus Aldo. If Aldo shuts down Habib's takedowns, I think everybody knows how that fight would go. How would that fight go on the feet? Aldo terrorizes him. But even though Aldo is the greatest anti-wrestler in MMA history, he's never fought a guy like Habib. He's never fought that kind of wrestling. He's never fought a guy as big as Habib. Habib is way bigger than he is. So I would have to say Habib beats Aldo. Takes him down, holds him down, does whatever he wants to Aldo. If Aldo was bigger, let's say it was a lightweight version of Jose Aldo who walks around 180, 190, I actually be a lot more confident in Aldo beating someone like Habib. But the size difference is a bit too much. I mean, Jose Aldo's fighting at bantamweight currently. There would be no way Habib would even fight at featherweight, let alone bantamweight. That's how big the gap is in size. Silva versus Adesanya. I'll say Adesanya, but I think it's pretty close. Jones versus Nganu. I'll say Nganu. DC versus Nganu. I'll say DC. Kane versus Jones. I'll say Jones. They're going to pop a burner. Out of all the champions, who do you think loses their belt first? Again, this is like a weird question because everybody's fighting at a different time. If they're all fighting at the same time, who do I think loses their belt first? Obviously, Aljamain Sterling. Like, it's not to be disrespectful, but man, he was getting ragged all by Petrion. Without him, let's say not Aljamain Sterling. Let's say he's excluded. I'll say it'll probably be Alexander Volkanovsky. With Ortega in his way, with Max Holloway there, with Zabit there, with Yair Rodriguez there, the guy does not have any easy fights. All of these fights are difficult for him, and that cannot be said for the other champions. Theodore Hosseini. Oh my gosh, I, I pronounced that wrong. I'm so sorry. Let me try again. Hosseini. How do you see Wonderboy versus Burns playing out? I think it's one of the most stylistically interesting matchups at welterweight right now. I agree with you, man. Believe it or not, I'm more hyped about this fight than Usman versus Jorge. Even though Jorge is my favorite fighter to watch in terms of like his skills and the way he fights and stuff, Wonderboy versus Burns is so good, man. Burns has power and speed to match Wonderboy. He has a takedown threat, yet he doesn't have the best chin. Wonderboy doesn't have the best chin either, but Wonderboy has a lot of heart. You drop him, it's hard to put him away, but then Wonderboy has good takedown defense, and he has that weird karate style that Burns has never fought up against before. Wonderboy brings a puzzle to the game that you have to fight him in order to feel it. You cannot fight anybody else. They would give you a hint of how to fight Wonderboy. And I think that's going to be a tough task for Burns, man. I think in his prime, if Wonderboy's still in his prime because he is a bit older now, I think a prime Wonderboy knocks out Gilbert Burns 100%. He finds the angles off the punches. Burns is uber aggressive. Sometimes he'll wing a big punch out there just to get you moving. And that is not going to work against Wonderboy. Wonderboy is an opportunistic counterpuncher. Every time you show him something, he's touching your chin in some way light or heavy, he's going to let you know that you're in danger whenever you throw something out there. Notice how every time Gilbert Burns starts a fight, big right overhand, he wings a big punch so he takes over the pace of the fight, so he takes the center of the octagon. He did it against Kamaru Usman, he did it against Tyron Woodley. He hurt both those guys because of that. But then he also did something similar against Alexei Kunchenko, who's a kickboxer. He threw that weird flying knee and then a hugely committed overextended in his 1-2. The way he likes to start a fight is not going to work against Wonderboy. A great fight to look at for Gilbert Burns is when he fought uh, Gunnar Nelson. Now, Gunnar Nelson is not the same thing as Wonderboy, not even close. The only thing they have similar is the fact that they're both counterpunchers, and they have a wide, bouncy stance. That's really it. When it comes to their attacks, the angles they take, 
Wonder Boy actually switches stances constantly. The kicks, Nelson doesn't throw that many kicks. Gunner Nelson's a jiu-jitsu artist. He wants to take it to the ground. That's his main goal in every single fight. Wonder Boy and Gunny fight very differently, but that's the best fight to look at for Gilbert Burns to see how he deals with that footwork, how he deals with the wide stance. And he did not come out there with an early aggression against Gunnar Nelson. He respected the power and the counter-punching ability. So he sat back with kicks and allowed Gunny to actually take over the fight a little bit. And if you ever see a Wonderboy fight, it's a general way how he gets caught. Whenever Wonderboy gets caught, it's because he's the one that's actually the aggressor or he has the control of the cage. And he makes a mistake. He throws a leg kick, gets taken to the ground. He slightly commits too much in his punches and gets caught by that overhand right against Tyron Woodley. He misses a side kick and gets knocked out by Anthony Pettis. And that is a possibility of happening if Gilbert Burns takes a more passive approach, allows Wonderboy to be the aggressor. So he comes forward and falls into one of his big punches because Burns is super fast, man. But there are times where he just can't help himself and he throws something wild out there, something big and committed. And every time he does that, he is going to get countered for it. We don't normally see Gilbert Burns try his hand at taking down the welterweights in the center of the cages, usually when he's pressuring them off of his strikes. If that early aggression is only going to get him caught, are his takedowns going to be effective at all? It's hard to take Wonderboy down if he's expecting them at least, or if he's moving around in the center of the cage. One of Burns' best attacks to go for are obviously going to be a lot of leg kicks. Don't attack with the hands too much, just throw a lot of feints out there, try to get something out of Wonderboy, but really focus a lot of his damage to the legs. Start with the legs so the head becomes easier to hit. That is going to be the main thing for Gilbert Burns to attack and inflict some damage to Wonderboy Thompson. If he starts winging punches out there like he's been doing, he is going to get countered, whether Wonderboy wants to take orthodox or southpaw. The openings are going to be so big, Wonderboy has so many angles to attack from, he has so many options to counter Gilbert Burns' aggression. And as Usman showed, Burns is not really good up against that jab. It could have been because he was going crazy for the knockout and he just wasn't seeing the most basic and the quickest punch in a boxer's arsenal. But if that's not the case, if he just can't see that jab that well, Wonderboy's gonna have a field day with him, man. Jabs, crosses, southpaw, orthodox, parallel, moving laterally, moving linearly, off of fades, countering, moving forward, aggressive, it doesn't even matter. Wonderboy can catch him in so many different ways. Wonderboy's straights are just as fast as some fighter's jabs. His kicks are as fast as some fighter's jabs. That's going to be a difficult fight for Burns, man. But then again, if Burns takes down Wonderboy, that fight's pretty much over. And if he catches Wonderboy once, because Wonderboy, even though he's winning the fight, he's adding up points, there's so many moments where he makes a mistake and he just catches one on the chin clean. And because he keeps his hands down so low, chin up high, doesn't put up a guard or anything like that, when Wonderboy Wonderboy gets hit, he gets hit hard. It's never a soft blow. He catches one in the chin by Burns and that fight might be over as well. Technically, if he keeps it together, if Wonderboy does not make that big mistake by coming in too far, missing his kick, all that stuff, I think he should be able to beat Gilbert Burns. And then we go to Colin Fahey. Would you ever consider doing striking or other MMA tutorials on your channel where you go over technique and form on certain kicks, punches, and other moves? Kind of similar to what Wonderboy is doing on his YouTube channel. Maybe not on the channel. I think a better platform to do that would probably be Instagram or TikTok or other places where it's easier to go through different videos because they are going to be shorter. I currently may have one video on Instagram that shows something of me doing something and I plan on doing that a little bit more. That is fun to do, but maybe more focus on specific techniques, maybe a technique after every certain fight. Let's say something crazy happens in Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. Some crazy strike gets thrown. What I could probably do after that would be I go on Instagram or I go on TikTok, depending which platform I want to use, and I perform the same technique and break it down very quickly. I can do stuff like that. Then we'll go to Brian Frosting. Ryan Garcia said that he will transition to MMA after retiring from boxing at age 26. Do you think he'll be the first high caliber boxer with a successful transition to MMA? It's possible because age 26 coming from boxing to MMA is still pretty young. He has combat sports experience. He's been trained for a very long time. He understands the mentality of it. Adding the wrestling and the kicks and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and stuff, that's going to be hard to gauge. It's going to take him years to get comfortable with that and use it in an MMA fight. But here's the problem with Ryan Garcia or any boxer that's going into MMA. They have instincts already developed. His instincts are going to rely on his boxing. How is that going to help him if he's fighting, let's say, a wrestler or even a kickboxer, kicks his legs, kicks his head or something like that? That is going to be one interesting thing to see if Garcia can get past that. Because for an example, in the UFC, there are high-level wrestlers that transition to MMA. Whenever they tap into their instincts, you always see them reach forward with their hands, very defenseless, shooting it for takedowns against knees. You don't normally see that with boxers because there hasn't been many boxers to transition to MMA. It's usually Muay Thai fighters. It's usually wrestlers. It's usually Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artists. And we see all of their instincts tap in, but their instincts are better for MMA than a boxer's. A wrestler's instinct 
things can counter pretty much anybody in the game. Besides maybe a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist and a Judoka, their instincts naturally, just generally speaking, could take down any version of a striker. A Muay Thai fighter's instincts covers all areas of striking. They have the most weapons out of any striking martial art. Someone from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, their instincts are going to cover pretty much every area of the ground game and in theory can counter wrestlers. A karate fighter, again, covers so many areas of the striking game and relies a lot on counter punching, moving around the cage, footwork, with many different tools in their arsenal. Then you have a boxer, only uses their hands, plants their feet, exposed hips and legs, and has no instincts on the ground at all. Their instincts are very good up against maybe a brawler or someone throwing punches at them making their instincts the most limited of the entire game. This is, of course, before developing wrestling, before developing kicks and stuff like that, because when you cover your weaknesses by combining martial arts, while your base is the mastery of punching, just general punches, nobody punches better than a boxer does, it's a very unique skill set to have. Let's say a boxer develops wrestling skills. Not only are they going to be able to defend takedowns or at least understand when a takedown's coming at them, but now they know how to counter wrestlers in positions that they would have never learned if they only knew boxing. The positions to take against a wrestler are very different than the positions you take when you want to counter a boxer. The angles are different. The punches you throw are different. The targeting is so different. And not only that, not only do you change the way you throw punches and the way you see takedowns, but your footwork is now a lot different. Now you understand not to plant your feet, you're a lot more mobile, which gives the wrestler a harder time to get at your legs. This also exposes even more for your counters. And as of right now, Ryan Garcia does not know wrestling, so he doesn't have that knowledge to go up against a wrestler. His instincts against a takedown are going to be horrendous. It's going to be what you saw from James Tony when he fought Randy Couture. He didn't even know what to do. Because wrestling, a takedown, is not used in boxing, so you don't have instincts against that. You see them duck low and you're like, wait, what's going on here? That's why your brain is firing throughout your body. What's happening? This is not boxing. I've never seen this before. So you freeze up. Against kickers, against wrestlers, it's going to be very hard to see him do well against them. And he's also going to have to lose a lot of the tendencies he learned in boxing. A lot of that muscle memory has to go away. It's only going to cause him problems in MMA. Leaning to his side too much. Pulling a bit too much. Being heavy on his feet. Digging and expecting a clinch. But the clinch in MMA is very, very different. There's no ref that's going to break you apart. There's going to be like one space where Ryan Garcia is going to excel. And that's like mid-boxing range. He doesn't want to be too close where he's going to get wrestled. He doesn't want to be too far where he's going to get kicked. And that's going to limit a lot of his skill set. I have to see how he picks up kicks and how he picks up wrestling. But the fact that he is so young, he has a brighter future at least compared to the other boxers. So amazing questions, guys. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Next one is going to come out probably by next week. So this is being more of a weekly thing. And again, if you guys want more, there's an extra podcast I'm having on my Patreon. Or you could be a member of the channel. Just join and you get another like 20 to 30 minutes of more content. So that's everybody. I'll see you guys in the next video.